Today I want to begin in prayer, so would you please join me? Oh, Heavenly Father, uh, we just pause as we get ready to go into this sermon, asking for you to work. Lord, we know that you are an omnipresent God, so there is not a single place in this universe where you do not already exist. And yet so often we go about our lives uh, just not acknowledging your presence with us. So we just want to stop and, and recognize, God, that you are here in this room with us. But also, God, we believe that you not just are with us, but you are for us, and that there are things that you want to convey to us. And so that's why we now ask that you would open our minds, our hearts, our ears, and our eyes to, to be able to capture and, and, and hold to what you proclaim, what you have for us, so that we can become the kind of people you call us to be. So, Lord, I pray that in my weakness you would be strong, that where I fall short in preaching, that you would uh, cover the gap so that each and every one of us would encounter you, the holy living God, and we would understand your perspective on these controversial topics we're going to look at today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, about 20 years ago, I uh, had a gal by the name of Lacey who made an appointment to meet with me. And I thought this was a little interesting because I was at that time the young adult pastor, which meant I worked with college students through those in their mid-30s. But Lacey was roughly about 14, 15 years old. And so I was a little curious why she wasn't meeting with the youth pastor and why instead she wanted to meet with me. And so we sat down uh, together and uh, I, I asked her, so, so why me? And she says, well, my older sister, who's involved in the young adult ministry at our church, she really respects you and your wife. And so I thought maybe you'd be someone who could help me. But she said also the subject matter that she felt like she needed some help with, some insight on, she wasn't quite ready to talk about that yet with her youth pastor. And so she was hoping that I might be able to help. So now I'm really curious. Okay, okay what is it that she wants to talk to me and, and yet wants to keep secret from her youth pastor? And she basically looked at me and said, I am attracted to girls. I'm not attracted to boys. And so what I want to know is, did God make me this way? Is it okay to be gay? 20 years ago, that question was usually asked in secret, in the, in the quiet. Because the majority of Americans, and especially majority of churches, would answer that question, no. And if someone were to say, well, yeah, it's fine, they would still probably say, but marriage is still for one man and one woman. This was back in the day when the Defense of Marriage Act of 1996 still was the law of the land. Only at that time, Massachusetts had passed a law saying that marriage was, uh, could be for same-sex uh, people. How times have changed. Here we are now, seven years into a federal law that has allowed same-sex marriage. Now, movies, commercials, uh, you know, music videos, I mean, everything in our culture just assumes the answer to that question is yes. And even churches who at one point would say no, they now not only say yes and welcome people, they would go as so far as to affirm them and even officiate their weddings. So you're probably wondering, so what did Aaron say to Lacey 20 years ago? And is what he said to her back then what he's going to say today. And so to help you understand what I said to her and what I have for you, I'm going to invite you to open up the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 
Uh, if you did not bring a Bible, don't worry about it. We're going to be putting the scripture up on the screen. Um, but if you have a Bible on your phone, totally feel free to pull that out. Uh, or if you want, after our worship gathering service, just stop by our resource table. We've got some paper Bibles there. We'd love to give one to you as our gift to you. And then you can use it not only on Sundays, but any day of the week. Uh, if you've not had a chance to meet me, uh, my name is Aaron, uh, the lead pastor here for Riverwood. And uh, one thing you need to know about me as we dive into today's topic is that I don't like arguments. I, I, I don't like controversy. I'm not good at confrontation. It's just not how I'm wired. Now, if, if you want to sit down and have a respectful conversation where we truly listen to one another, I'm, I'm game. But as far as like the, the yelling, the, the straw man arguments, the uh, gotcha one-liners that seem popular on Twitter and cable news, I, like that's just, that's not me. And so the reason I tell you that is that my willingness to wade into this controversial hot topic for today shows that I feel that this is important. But you need to know I'm not doing this to just trying to stir the pot. Uh, some churches will do subjects like this trying to get lots of people there. That, that's not my goal. My goal is to help you to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. And so what that means is we, you and I, if you are a Jesus follower, we need to see how did Jesus view humans, what was his approach to them, and therefore we then go and do likewise. So I'm not here today to try to convince you of my way. My hope and goal is that you will encounter God through the scriptures, seeing what he has for us so that we can truly live and love like Jesus. And I think that uh, we should begin our conversation in 1 Corinthians 6 because I think it begins to help us wrap our minds around some of this really controversial uh, subject matter. So join me at 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Well, food is, for, is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Last week, I shared with you my view on the scriptures. And for our purposes today, I'm going to remind you. I believe that a perfect God perfectly wrote these words through imperfect authors to convey to, his, to the original readers as well as people throughout all of time and culture and history to get to us exactly what we need. 
So it means I don't believe that this is just Paul sharing his opinion, even though I believe he fully was convinced of what he was writing. I believe this is God writing through Paul, the, the Holy Spirit guiding him to write exactly what we need to hear even today in 2022. And Paul begins his argument back there in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me. Now, this was a common colloquialism of the day. What you need to realize is that he's writing to a church that's located in the city of Corinth. We talked about Corinth three weeks ago, just a little bit. Uh, if you would throw up the map, it, Corinth is located right there on this isthmus between the northern uh, part of Greece and the southern peninsula. So any traffic that's going from the north to the south is probably going to pass through this city. Also, a lot of ships would come in there to those bay and gulf, and they would drop off their wares and people there. So there was a lot of traffic in this ancient city. It was a trade route, which meant that these people came from all over the place and brought with them their religions, their ideas, their worldviews, and their sexual practices. Corinth had there a temple in which one of the cults had these prostitutes, where as part of your worship, you would engage in sexual activity with these temple workers. Also, they're located in Greece, underneath the Roman Empire. Both the Greek culture and Roman uh, culture had these very, very progressive liberal views on sexuality. So Corinth would have been a very, very, very progressive community for its time. And Paul's writing to this church that gets caught up within the confusion of it all. In fact, here's how confused they were. Back in chapter 5 of this letter, he tells them, hey, I've heard that you've got a guy in your church sleeping with his stepmom. Now, we don't know that it is his stepmom. All we know is he says, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, it could have been his biological mom, but I suspect if it was truly mom, he would have said his mother. So it's probably a stepmom. And Paul's like, guys, you're getting confused. Like, all this influence around you is seeping in. And so I want to help correct it. And so he jumps right on one of the common colloquialisms of their day. All things are lawful for me. In other words, the people at Corinth were saying, ah, you know what? It's not illegal. I can do it. And, and Paul kind of concedes to them. Like, you know, you're right. You can do it. But it might not be helpful. In fact, the second time he says it there in verse 12, that after all things are lawful for me, he says, but I will not be dominated. In other words, okay, you could do that, but it might actually become something that enslaves you. As we saw in the series, the whole point of Jesus coming is to free us. So to be owned by God is not to become this, you know, oppressed slave. It's actually to come out into this freedom of what God has for us. And yet some people were saying, well, that's not illegal. I can do that. Paul's like, well, you're right. You can, but it may not actually be the best for you. This may actually enslave you. And then he jumps to another common colloquialism of their day. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. This was not actually <laughs> about uh, of eating. This was actually a euphemism for sex. The idea was that, well, hey, just as I have a stomach, I should eat. I have sexual organs, so I should have sex. When Leanne and I lived in Venezuela, uh, we were working at a missionary kid's school, and I was talking to a longtime missionary there. He'd planted a church, and he had a woman in his church who came to him and said that her husband was having serial affairs, and she was really, really tired of his infidelity. 
So she was asking the missionary, would you sit down and talk with him? So this missionary sits down with the guy and basically is like, dude, this isn't good for you. It's not good for your marriage. This isn't what God has for you. And the, and the guy just kind of waves his hand and says, whoa, 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 whoa. He says, my wife is the cathedral. But if the cathedral's not available, surely I should still worship. Like to him, this is just how it is. Well, that's what the Corinthians were doing. Well, just as we have a stomach, we should eat. Hey, we got these organs. We should use them. And our culture's not far behind. Right now, one of our mantras is as long as it is between consenting adults, it's okay. It's fine. But Paul is trying to say to them, but guys, it may be allowed, but it may not be the best. And that is why he continues on in verse 13. Now, as we continue on, you need to realize he's talking to Jesus followers. He's not talking to just a broader audience. He's talking to those who say, I know the gospel, I've given my life to Jesus. And so keep that in mind as you hear what he says next. The second half of verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. This gets back to what we saw in week one. When God the, the Father says to the Son and the Spirit, let us make mankind in our image, we saw last week he embedded that image into the DNA of humans. But God also put that DNA in a body. That DNA helps to create these bodies that we all have. So your body was, been, was designed by God, given to you by God. And so first, if you are a human, you have the image of God in you. So in a sense, you belong to God. And so you shouldn't just be able to take your body and do whatever you want with it. However, most people don't acknowledge God. They see this as their own and so who are you to tell them what to do? That's why Paul takes his argument a step further. Because as we saw in week two, not only were you created in the image of God, you've also been purchased by God. That's what it gets to down in verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So when a person puts their faith into the story of Jesus, dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, we believe it to be true. God's Spirit comes to live within us. Ephesians 1 tells us that you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So now because the Holy Spirit is in you, you can't just go and use this body that God designed, he's purchased, and go and use it for however you want for your own pleasure. Well, that has to lead us then into, well, I, before I get to that, what I've noticed, though, is a lot of Christians flip this. A, a lot of Christians try to tell the world, especially non-Jesus followers, here's what you're supposed to do with your body, but they live, they don't say it, but they live as though all things are lawful for me. That's the wrong approach. We got to do, if we're going to live like Jesus lived, we have to have a very different approach. But before we can talk about that approach, we need to do two things. First, we need to acknowledge a biblical truth, all right? So we need to establish some groundwork, and then we're going to need a definition so that we know exactly what we are addressing, all right? So first, let's look at the uh, biblical truth that we need to acknowledge. When God made Adam and Eve, he made them as sexual beings. Because in, in the little intro video, you saw verses uh, 26 and 27 of Genesis 1. Well, if that kept going, if you got into 28... The first thing God says to Adam and Eve, 
be fruitful and multiply. Like, I don't think you have to go through biology class and read chapter 45 to know exactly what that means. All right? It's go, reproduce, or just to put it crassly, have sex. And so if God has created it, it's a good thing. And just look at how he created men and women. Their bodies were designed to fit together. So this is created by God for humans. But it's not just for the population of the earth. As you continue to study the scriptures, you can go into the Song of Songs. If we continued on in 1 Corinthians into chapter 7, we see that this is also for protection. It's for this bonding between humans. In fact, after sex, the body puts out this hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin does a number of things in the body, one of which is helps create a bond between people. This is why God has created this for one man and one woman to come together. But that now leads us into this definition that we need to have. Because if Paul is saying back there in 1 Corinthians 6 that the body is uh, for the Lord and the Lord for the body, and so therefore the body is not meant for sexual immorality, we need to know, so what is sexually immoral? And so I, I gave some thought to how our culture would define sexual immorality right now. And I came up with six things. I think currently our culture would say that cheating is sexually immoral unless you're in an open relationship. Pedophilia, rape, incest, bestiality, and necrophilia. I feel like our culture would say those are all no-nos. If they found out someone was engaging in those things, they kind of might go, oh, that's, that's not good. You probably should be arrested or something. Now, the thing is, that list, 20 years ago, would have been longer. On that list probably would have been number of partners. Some people on their list, it would have you know, been like same-sex relationships. A hundred years ago, without a doubt, same-sex relationships would be on there. And also would put things like, you know, don't visit brothels and, and stuff. Like the, the list would be even longer of what's sexually immoral. And, and yet I suspect that five, 10, maybe 20 years from now, that list will change. It's possible some things might get added to it, but more likely, some things will be taken away from it. Why why do I say that? Uh, Just a few years ago, uh, here at Riverwood, we did a series on on, uh, sex, and uh, in in one of the sermons, I'd done some research, and I found out that the uh, top two uh, search terms on porn websites were stepmom and stepsister. Now, most of you right now are going, ooh, But if that starts to become the normal, I could see the potential for incest to eventually be taken off that list, that it suddenly becomes fine for family members to engage in sexual activity with one another. Also, there's an organization known as the North American Man-Boy Love Association. They used to be a little larger, not very large, I think only like a thousand some members. They've they've gotten a little quieter because there's been cultural pressure that what they're trying to do is, is gross and wrong. So they're currently working behind the scenes to try to get Congress to lower the age of consent or even eliminate it because they see historical data, and there is historical data. There were other cultures, including the Roman culture that Paul is writing into, where it was fine for an older male to have a young male lover. And if it's consensual, it should be fine. So I could see the potential in the future for even pedophilia to drop off this list and that no longer be considered immoral. Do you see how the culture's views are constantly shifting? 
that right now what you may think is okay at one time may not have been. But right now you may think, well, that's not okay. And guess what? You're going to become the old fuddy-duddy someday because you're not in line with what our culture is saying. This is why I don't think we should be making our judgments just upon where the culture is at. That's why I think we need to consider what is God's definition of sexual morality? That if God is the one who's designed us humans as sexual beings, and then he has the audacity to write to us through Paul, the body was not meant for sexual immorality, what does he mean? What is his definition? And here's what I believe the definition from Scripture is. God's view, God's definition of sexual immorality is it is any sexual act performed outside the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. Now, I realize that that statement right there is incredibly controversial. Like 30, 40 years ago, no one would have batted an eye at this. Nowadays, there are people who are incredibly, like if they're listening to this or, or you're here right now, you're incredibly disappointed in me. Maybe you're getting angry. Maybe you're thinking like, this is not a safe space for me. You're thinking right now, I I could never come back. I'll never listen to this guy ever again because he has the audacity to say that. Well, I will be honest. I don't want that to be the definition. I wish, because I hear it in my culture, I wish we could just say, it's fine. As long as it is between two consenting adults, it's fine. What harm is it doing? So there seem to be all these reasons. When I sat with Lacey in my office 20 years ago, I asked her for permission to meet again. I wanted to spend some time to read and research because here's this cool kid wanting to do the right thing. And so I'm wanting to basically say, you know what, as long as you're committed, as long as long as, you know, there's no harm done, it's fine. And yet there's this part of me that, that sensed and knew the scriptures teach something different. But maybe I've been wrong. I've been reading some authors who said, well, actually the way we've understood these things traditionally from the scripture, we're actually off. This is actually what those authors meant, or this is what God means, or God's been progressive through these things. So I didn't want to lead her astray. So I spent the next two, three weeks reading, studying, with a desire and a bent to try to find some sort of opening, some sort of loophole where I could tell Lacey, as long as you are committed and loving and gentle, it's fine. But as hard as I tried, I couldn't find it. I felt that those who were arguing for same-sex relationships were playing hermeneutical gymnastics. I could not just find their, their arguments to be convincive enough. And so I found myself frustrated to have to sit down with Lacey and say, here's what I believe the scriptures say. And my encouragement was that she would put her life in line with what God had for her and not just what her feelings had for her. So I want you to know, I don't say this as some just old-fashioned, out-of-touch, narrow-minded, fundamentalist pastor. I say this as someone who has this high view of scripture and a deep respect for historic Orthodox Christianity. But I realize, for some of you right now, you're going, yes, finally. You know, inside, your head is nodding. 
Right? If we were a black church, one of you right now would be going, Preacher, brother. Right? You, you wouldn't be able to keep quiet. But others of you, you're inside just shaking your head. You are so disappointed in me right now. You cannot believe I just said those things. You, 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 you're angry. In fact, if you're listening to the podcast, you may not have even made it this far. You've probably already turned it off. Because this is such a hot-button issue. That's why I think a lot of pastors, when they would reach this point in the sermon, would launch into a defense of that definition. And they would begin to roll out verse after verse after verse, proving, justifying why this is the definition they came up with. I thought that's the route we were going to go today. And then I realized that that's not how we should do this. Because number one, you guys don't want to be here until 3 or 4 p.m. Right? I'm pretty sure you want to go home and have some lunch. Second, even if I could go until 3 or 4 p.m., I would not do the subject justice. I could not do it in, a, in an adequate enough way. But also, I fear it's going to take us off target. I feel like there's something even more important for us. So if you want to need to have a conversation, feel free to email me. Let's get something scheduled. Let's have a conversation. But for the remainder of our time, let's go back to the question I asked earlier. What should be our approach? The Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, also writes a great approach in 1 Timothy. So if you know where the book of 1 Timothy is, feel free to flip over there in your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy 1, uh, we're going to start in verse 8, and we're going to go all the way through verse 15. So 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 8. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Right? I mean, think about that. You know, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, here's the law, but if no one enforces it, is it really the law? Right? So he says, yeah, it's good to have a law if you actually use it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. In other words, those who are already doing the right thing and good, they don't really need the law. So who's the law for? But for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers, their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this, his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I want you to notice first what Paul does. He first starts by just calling out sin. He, he doesn't hold back. Right? He's writing into a Greek and Roman culture that much of what he just said, they totally disagree with. They have absolutely no problem with same-sex relationships. It was quite common for certain masters to have slaves whose purpose was primarily sexual. They, they were these enslavers. 
Right? He, he calls it out as it is. But then he doesn't do what so many of us Christians do and have, throw out the holier-than-thou card, our trump card. Well, I've never done that. No, did you notice what he does next? He lumps himself right in with them. After listing all those sins in verse 9 and 10, down in 13 through 15, he basically says, yeah, but I, I'm one of them. I was insolent. I was against God. In fact, he says, this saying is trustworthy and true. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. In other words, he doesn't look down on anyone else because of their sin, because he's aware of his sin. And he realizes, if God could save me, he could save anyone. I think that's the approach we need to take, to recognize they are fellow image bearers, just like us, but they are also sinners, just like us. And if us sinners need Jesus, what they need isn't to be convinced that they're wrong in their, their viewpoints or, or made to become straight or made to believe, you know, whatever. What they need is Jesus first and foremost. I think that should be our approach. And so my question for you, if you are a follower of Jesus, how do you view those around you, especially when it comes to their sexual orientation and gender identity? If you view them as awful, disgusting, evil, then I suspect you don't appreciate just how awful and disgusting and evil your sin is. Just go back to verses 9 and 10. Just start looking at the list. Now, if you're like me, you might be able to look in there and go, well, pff, I've never struck my mom or dad. Like, I, I've never murdered anyone. You know, I, I've never enslaved someone. Like, I'm pretty good. Uh, well, but Aaron, how about the sexually immoral part? Have you ever lusted after someone, like truly lusted after someone who's not your spouse? Have you ever slept with someone who's not your spouse? 96% of people have sex before they are married. So statistically, most of you have committed sexual immorality. Have you ever viewed porn? Have you ever fooled around in that drunken state? And guess what? We could go off the sexual immoral stuff. You could, we could go on. Have you ever lied? Have you uh, ever done anything that's contrary to sound doctrine? In other words, here's what God desires for you, and, and you've gone against that? Every single one of us has sinned. Our sin is awful, disgusting, and evil. And yet, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's why we have to have a change of method, a change of perspective. So if you are, uh, uh, if you are, um, Consider yourself straight. Um, maybe you've got a fairly clean sexual past. You don't seem to struggle with a lot of these things. You, you can't play the holier-than-thou card, pretending that you're somehow better. Besides, I don't think that sexual sins are even the worst sins. 
In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul's writing to this church in Rome, and he describes this spiral of sin. It starts at the top, these people not acknowledging God. But as they not acknowledge God, they start to slide down. And on the way down, he mentions same-sex activity. But so many people get stuck there. See, it's, it's evil and bad, not realizing the slide continues. And as you go on in Romans 1, you see he starts talking about envy, gossip, lying, deceit, cheating. Like, it just continues to spiral down. Because if you think about it, some of these common sins, the ones that we tend to just do and are fine with, cause more damage to fellow image bearers than some of these sexual sins. Yes, the sexual sins are sins against God and against your own body. But yet so many of these other sins damage others even deeper and more perverse. And so we cannot view those who may maybe struggle sexually differently than us as these horrible, evil, awful people. No, they're just like us. Their sin, their struggle may be different, but they need what we need. They need Jesus. I think that's what Paul's method, his approach is in 1 Timothy. And I think this approach works. At least it worked for a guy by the name of Caleb Kaltenbach. Caleb wrote a book called Messy Grace. Uh, A few uh, months ago, I happened to listen to the audio version of it where he read it himself. And he has an absolutely fascinating story. He grew up the son of university professors, and they got divorced fairly early in his life because, it turns out, both of his parents were gay. His dad remained in the closet for a number of years, but mom, almost immediately after after the divorce, entered into a committed lesbian relationship. Caleb spent most of his time with his moms and spent weekends with his dad. Grew up in Kansas City, Missouri, And his whole entire life, his whole community was with the gay community. The LGBTQ community was his family. He was at gay pride parades all the time. They had all these people over in their house. These people were fun. They were loving. They were caring. This is who he knew. The people who were mean and evil in his life were Christians. Because they were the ones at the gay pride parades holding the signs saying, God's hate fags. They were the ones yelling the vicious things as they would walk by and down the street. And his mom would say, don't you ever become a Christian. Don't you become like them. Well, in high school, Caleb, who was not same-sex attracted, saw this really cute girl, and he noticed she had a Bible. Well, that's too bad. But then she didn't act like those other Christians. And so one day, she invites him to youth group. Maybe here's his chance. So yeah, he's going to go just to hang out with her. But then he realizes, maybe this is my chance. Maybe this is the opportunity for me to learn what they believe so I can dismantle it and prove to them, my moms are fine. But as he gets in there, he begins to hear about God's love, God's grace. And the gospel changed his life. After several months of going to the youth group, Caleb gave his life to Jesus and was baptized. But then he had to go home and tell his moms and his dad Imagine how difficult it is for a son, a daughter, who's feeling same-sex attracted to come out to their parents. It's kind of what it was like for him, but on the flip. They were so angry, so disappointed, 
And they just began to badger him with all of their arguments of why he's wrong and why the Bible's wrong. And so it would have been very tempting for Caleb to go off and try to understand, well, what does the Bible actually say on this? And if he comes to a a point of saying, well, yeah, same-sex attraction or, or activity is a sin, he could come back and refute that. But that's not what he chose to do. He decided that because God could love someone like him, it also meant God could love someone like his mom and her partner and his dad. And so he decided to just engage in messy grace. Because if God could give him grace, he could give them grace. Caleb went on to a Bible college against their wishes, ended up going to seminary against their wishes, and ended up becoming a full-time pastor against their wishes. But the longer time went on, the more they started realizing Caleb was not going to reject them, that he genuinely loved them. And they began to actually listen and open up. And now Caleb is thrilled that both his mom and his dad have given their lives to Christ. I don't think he would have seen a moment like that had he done what so many of us Christians do of trying to win the argument, of trying to make a gay person straight, of trying to convince them that if you have male anatomy, you're clearly a male, so I refuse to use female pronouns for you. Instead, he enters into this grace of loving them because God loved him. I think that's the approach we need to take. But what if, what if you are attracted to the same sex? What, what if you um, are questioning right now your gender? What if you have a long sexual past? What if right now you're struggling with porn? What, what if you've been having multiple partners right now? What do you do? First, I want you to know I'm glad you're here. You do not have to have cleaned up your act in order to walk through those doors. Because like Paul said, Jesus Christ came to save sinners like me, of whom I am the, the foremost. I'm the chief. And if God could forgive me, and allow me this opportunity to wade into these awkward, difficult conversations with you, he can forgive you. And so you do not have to clean up your act before you give your life to Jesus. You do not have to suddenly become straight. You do not have to suddenly figure out, here's what it means to be male or female. You do not have to suddenly go back and apologize to every single person you ever slept with. You don't have to get yourself clean from porn for six months or a year before you give your life to Jesus. No, you just come. You just come. Bring it all. Bring your junk, bring your past, bring your sin, lay it all down before Jesus. Because God is not wanting you to clean up your act before you come to him. He wants you to come to him so he can help you to clean up your act. He's got something better for you and he wants to be part of the change. So just come. But some of you, you are a follower of Jesus. You know the gospel story, and yet the attractions have not gone away. The allure of porn is still there. You still have those thoughts from from what happened in your past. You're still questioning, did God put the wrong brain in this body? So what do you do? You come to Jesus. 
But I'm going to add one more part to it. You come to Jesus, you surrender this, and you seek to live faithfully. I can't imagine something more difficult and yet more beautiful than a person who acknowledges their feelings, their desires, their temptations, and yet says, but I trust God. That's why I have just so much respect for people like Rachel Gilson and Rebecca McLaughlin, Christopher Ewan, Gregory Coles, uh, Jackie Hill Perry, my friend James. All of these are Christians who admit they're same-sex attracted and yet have chosen to live biblically because they're convinced of that definition that I gave you. If you're not familiar with them, go back, re-listen to the sermon, Google their names, you can find their books, you can hear their stories on YouTube. They are an inspiration to me. I can't imagine how difficult it would be. If, if you're like me and never been drawn to someone of the same sex, if you're like me and you've never once questioned whether you're in the right body, if you're like me and you don't have quite the, the, the history, the past, you, you've got to give some empathy. You've got to understand. You can be thankful that God led you the way he did, but you have got to show some love and care to them. And so if this is you, I want you to know you are welcome here. Come. You know where we now stand on these issues, but we are not going to kick you out for it. We're going to do what we can to walk alongside of you, to love you and support you because we realize we are sinners, so we are no better than you. But if God can call us and use us for his glory and to bless the world, I believe he can do the same thing in you. So the key is, come to Jesus. As you come to Jesus, realize you're made in the image of God. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ. Your sin is now forgiven. And you can go and take that message to others. So Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would help us as we continue to wrestle with this. Our culture has such strong opinions and is so loud about so much of this that it's easy for us to be kind of like the Corinthians and get confused. And yet you've written these words through Paul, through other authors, very clearly stating what you believe, what you have for us. And so I pray you'd help us to trust you, to trust you with our lust, to trust you with our desires, to trust you with our temptations, to trust you with the, the way we kind of think, to realize it's all been twisted and tainted by sin. And yet you, Jesus, came to forgive us of that sin and begin that restoration process so that we might become more like you. And so I pray that these next few moments, that for those of us who have lived in judgment of, of people struggling in their sexual sin, that we would repent of that judgment, that we would realize we are no better than them, and yet you came to die for us. For those of us who are struggling in our sexual sin, realizing that we've been using our bodies however we want, and yet now we've heard that this body is created by you. It's for you, Lord. And so we want to use these bodies for your glory. So help us today to confess this sin, to commit ourselves maybe for the first time, maybe for the 10th time, maybe for the 100th time. But God, your, your grace is inexhaustible. We, we, we can never even get to the end of it. And so I pray you'd help each and every one of us to just fall on our knees before you, realizing that you love us, you are for us, 
and you can cleanse us of all unrighteousness, including our sexual ones. And lastly, God, I just pray that if there's anything that I may have said today that hurt, that maybe harmed, that maybe wasn't in line with what you have, that you would just graciously allow us to forget those things, that they, they, they wouldn't damage. But God, anything that I did say that was of you, no matter how much it hurt, that we would realize it was like a surgical knife that you were wielding it and using it for our good. So that's why I ask God that you would help us to lay down before you, to completely surrender and to completely trust you. Because you are God, you are good. You are for us and you love us. And then lastly, God, I realize that I have left out probably one of the most important things. We can't do this on our own. God, help us not to fool ourselves thinking we can walk out those doors and just go and do better. Help us to realize that these sexual sins that we are so drawn to, that, that we need you to help. We need your power in us. So I pray that the, anyone who's here today that is not a follower of Jesus, that today would become their spiritual birthday and that they would confess their sin, they'd surrender their lives and your Holy Spirit would then come in them to live in them and work through them, empowering them to allow you to change them and overcome these things. And for the person who does know you, that they too would walk in your power, realizing that they can't do this in and of themselves. But God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you that he's there to empower us, to lead us, to guide us. So as we come to these communion elements, may we not only realize that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of these sins, but that you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us live out the kind of life you call us to. And we don't have to give in to these sins. So while all things may be lawful, help us, God, to see that there's something better. That you are there and we need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At this point, we will open up our communion tables. Uh, if you are a first-time guest with us, we practice open communion, meaning if you know the story of Jesus dying on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins that he rose again from the dead, and you've put all of your faith into that story, then you can come. Come and worship. Come, confess. Come and just give all of yourself to him. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're just not ready to make a step like that, that's okay. We'll walk with you as long as you want to walk with us, and we will continue to help you try to understand and wrap your mind around this. But if, if that's you, then I'm just going to ask that you very respectfully not go to these communion tables. Maybe you grew up in a church tradition that allowed you to come and be a part of this. I'm not trying to keep something from you. It's that I want something better for you. This table is for those who know the story of Jesus and have put all their faith in it. When you take that bread, that cup, you're saying the body of Jesus was broken for you. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. You're taking that story and making it part of your story. And so that's why I just ask that if you're not there yet, that you just very respectfully not go to these tables. You may pray, you may sing, but, but don't go. But even if this is your first time here and you know the story, come. Come to Jesus. 
Come with all of it, your junk, your baggage, your past, your sin, and lay it before him and thank him for dying on the cross for your sins. But then as you take those elements into you, ask him to help you become more like him. That if Jesus could come to save sinners like us, that we would take that message to other sinners like us so that they too might know the joy of what Jesus did for them through the cross. And that is why we should do this in remembrance of him.